Hi everyone! Before we start today's show, I would like to let you know that Uncle Jay will not be joining us for the foreseeable future. As we all know, being a flight attendant can be a very lonely lifestyle, and sometimes we just need a break. We can be talking to 400, 1,000 passengers a day. We could be flying with people that we know, but sometimes we just don't know the stress that we have inside of us, of our personal life, and we need a break. So until Uncle Jay can come back, we will put out as many episodes as possible. I've asked a few friends to come join me and be a co-host for me for a week or two weeks, depending. I've also asked other podcast hosts to be in the show and do a collaboration with us. So, until then, let's get on with today's show. This podcast. The seatbelt sign is on. It's going to be a rough ride. the flight attendant podcast i'm b and by myself today we are going to talk about 9-11 so this is going to be an episode of the reroute we're going to get right into it since i'm not going to read any news so on september 11 2001 19 militants associated with the islamic extremist group al-qaeda hijacked four airplanes and carried out suicide attacks against targets in the United States. Two of the planes were flown into the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in New York City. A third hit the Pentagon, just outside of Washington, D.C., and the fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Almost 3,000 people were killed during the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which triggered major U.S. initiatives to combat terrorism and define the presidency of George W. Bush. On September 11, 2001, at 8.45 a.m., on a clear Tuesday morning, an American Airlines Boeing 767, loaded with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel, crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. The impact left a gaping, burning hole near the 80th floor of the 110-story skyscraper, instantly killing hundreds of people and trapping hundreds more in the higher floors. As the evacuation of the tower and its twin got underway, television cameras broadcasted live images of what initially appeared to be a freak accident. Then, 18 minutes after the first plane hit, a second Boeing 767, United's airline flight 175, appeared out of the sky, turned sharply towards the World Trade Center, and sliced into the south tower of the 60th floor. The collision caused a massive explosion that showered burning debris over surrounding buildings and onto the streets below. It immediately became clear that America was under attack. The hijackers were Islamic terrorists from the Saudi from Saudi Arabia and several other Arab nations, reportedly financed by the Al Qaeda terrorist organization of Saudi of Saudi fugitive Osama bin Laden. They were allegedly acting in retaliation for America's support of Israel, its involvement in the Persian Gulf War, and its continued military presence in the Middle East. Some of the terrorists had lived in the United States for more than a year and had taken flying lessons at American commercial flight schools. Others had slipped into the country in the months before 9-11 and acted as muscle for the operation. The 19 terrorists easily smuggled box cutters and knives through security at three East Coast airports and boarded four early morning flights bound for California. Chosen, the planes were loaded with fuel for the long trans- transcontinental journey. Soon after takeoff, the terrorists commandeered the four planes and took controls 
transforming ordinary passenger jets into guided missiles. As Millian watched the events unfolding in New York, American Airlines Flight 77 circled over downtown Washington, D.C. before crashing into the west side of the Pentagon military headquarters at 9.45 a.m. Jet fuel from Boeing 757 caused a devastating inferno that led to the structural collapse of a portion of the giant concrete building, which is the headquarters of the U.S. Department of Defense. All told, 125 personnel and civilians were killed in the Pentagon, along with all, all 64 aboard the airliner. Less than 15 minutes after the terrorists struck the nerve of the U.S. military, the horror New York took a catastrophic turn. When the South Tower of the World Trade Center collapsed into a massive cloud of dust and smoke, the structural steel of the skyscraper, built to withstand winds in the excess of 2,000 miles per hour, and a large conventional, conventional fire, could not withstand the tremendous heat generated by the burning jet fuel. At 10.30 a.m., the North Building of the ten, Twin Towers collapsed. Only six people in the World Trade Center towers at the time of their collapse arrived. Almost 10,000 others were treated for injuries, many severe. Meanwhile, a fourth California-bound plane, United Flight 93, was hijacked about 40 minutes after leaving Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey. Because the plane had been delayed in taking off, passengers on board learned of the events in New York and Washington via cell phone and air phone calls to the ground. Knowing the aircraft was not returning to an airport as the hijackers claimed, a group of passengers and flight attendants planned an insurrection. One of the passengers, Thomas Burnett, one of the passengers, Thomas Burnett Jr., told his wife over the phone that, I know we're all going to die. There's three of us who are going to do something about it. I love you, honey. Another passenger, Todd Beamer, was heard saying, Are you guys ready? Let's roll. Over an open line. Sandy Bradshaw, a flight attendant called her, hus her husband and explained that she had slipped into the galley and was filling pitchers of with boiling water. Her last words to him were, Everyone's running to first class. I gotta go. Bye. The passengers fought the, f the four hijackers and are suspected to have attacked the cockpit with a fire extinguisher. The plane then flipped over and sped forward the ground upwards 500 miles per hour, crashing into a rural field near Shanksville in western Pennsylvania at 10.10 a.m. All 44 people aboard were killed. Its intended target is unknown, but theories include the White House, the U.S. Capitol, the Camp David Presidential Retreat in Maryland, or one of several nuclear power plants along the eastern seaboard. A total of 2,996 people were killed in the 9-11 attacks, including the 19 terrorist hijackers aboard the four airplanes. Citizens of 78 countries died in New York, Washington, D.C., and Pennsylvania. At the World Trade Center, 2,763 died after the two planes slammed into the Twin Towers. That figure includes 343 firefighters and paramedics, 23 New York City police officers, and 37, Port Authority, and 37 Port Authority police officers who were struggling to complete an evacuation of the buildings and save the office workers trapped on higher floors. At the Pentagon, 189 people were killed, including 64 on American Airlines Flight 77, the, airline, the airliner that struck the building. On Flight 93, 44 people died when the plane crash landed in Pennsylvania. At 7 p.m., President George W. Bush, who was in Florida at the time of the attacks and had spent the day being shuffled around the country because security concern, returned to the White House. At 9 p.m., he delivered a televised address from the Oval Office declaring terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These, these acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. In a reference to the eventual U.S. military response, to the eventual U.S. military response, he declared, "We will not make. We will not. 
We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. Operation Enduring Freedom The American-led international effort to oust the Taliban regime in Afghanistan and destroy Osama bin Laden's terrorist network base there began on October 7. Within two months, U.S. forces had effectively removed the Taliban for operational, from operational power, but the war continued. As U.S. and coalition forces attempted to defeat a Taliban insurgency, insurgency campaign based in a neighboring Pakistan. Osama bin Laden, the mastermind behind the September 11 attacks, remained at large until May 2, 2011, when he was finally tracked down and killed by U.S. forces at a hideout in Abbottabad, Pakistan. In June 2011, then-President Barack Obama announced the beginning of a large-scale troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. It took until August 2021 for all U.S. forces to withdraw. In the wake of the security fears raised by 9-11 and the mailing of letters containing anthrax that killed two and infected 17, the Homeland Security Act of 2002 created by the Department of Homeland Security. It was designed into law by President George W. Bush on November 25, 2002. Today, the Department of Homeland Security is a cabinet, respons is cabinet responsible for preventing terrorist, terror attacks, border security, immigration and customs, and disaster relief and prevention. The act was followed by two the act was followed two days later by the formation of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. The bipartisan 9-11 Commission, as it came to be known, was charged with investigating the events that led up to September 11. The 9-11 Commission report was released on July 22, 2004. It named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed the accused mastermind behind 9-11 the principal architect on the 9-11 attacks. Mohammed led propaganda operations for Al-Qaeda from 1999 to 2001. He was captured on May 1, 2003 by the Central Intelligence Agency and Pakistan's Internal Servi Inter-Services Intelligence and interrogated before being imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay detention camp with four other accused terrorists charged with 9-11 related war crimes. The use of torture, including waterboarding, during Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's interrogation has received international attention. In August 2019, a U.S. military court judge in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, set a trial date for Mohammed and the other four men charged with plotting the 9-11 terrorist attacks to begin in 2021. It was later postponed because of the COVID pandemic. The 9-11 attacks had an immediate negative effect on the U.S. economy. Many Wall Street institutions, including the New York Stock Ex Exchange, were evacuated during the attacks. On the first day of trading after the attacks, the market fell 7.1%, or 684 points. New York City's economy alone lost 143,000 jobs a month and $2.8 billion in wages in the first three months. The heaviest losses were in finance and air transportation which accounted for 60% of lost jobs. The estimated cost of the World Trade Center damage is $60 billion. The cost to clean the debris at ground zero was $750 million. Thousands of first responders and people working and living in lower Manhattan near ground zero were exposed to toxic fumes and particles emanating from the towers as they burned and fell. By 2018, 10,000 people were diagnosed with 9-11-related cancer. From 2001 to 2004, over $7 billion in compensation was given to families of the 9-11 victims and the 2,680 people injured in the attacks. Funding was renewed on January 2, 2011, when President Barack Obama signed the James Sadroga 9-11 Health and Compensation Act into law, named for James Sadroga, a New York City police officer who died of respiratory disease he contracted after rescuing people from the rubble at Ground Zero. The law continued health, mon the law continued health mon mon monitoring and compensation for 9-11 first responders. In 2015, funding for the treatment of 9-11-related 
illnesses was renewed for five more years at a total of $7.4 billion. The victim compensation fund was able to what the victim compensation fund was set up to stop accepting claims in December 2020. On July 29, 2019, then President Trump signed a law authorizing support for the September 11 victim compensation fund through 2092. Previously, administrators had cut benefits by 70% as the 7.4 billion dollar fund depleted. Vocal lobbyists for the fund included John Stewart, 9-11 first responder John Feel, and retired New York police officer, detective, and 9-11 responder Luis Alvarez, who died of cancer 18 days after testifying before Congress. On December 18, 2001, Congress approved naming September 11 Patriot Day to commemorate the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. In 2009, Congress named September 11 a National Day of Service and Remembrance. The first memorials to September 11 came in the immediate wake of the attacks, with candlelight vigils and flower tributes at U.S. embassies around the world. In Great Britain, Queen Elizabeth sang the American National Anthem during the changing of the guards at Buckingham Palace. Rio de Janeiro put up billboards showing the city's Christ and the Redeemer statue embracing New York City, the New York City skyline. For the first anniversary of the attacks in New York City in 2002, two bright columns were shot up into the sky from where the Twin Towers once stood. The tribute in light then became an annual installation run by the Municipal, Municipal Art Society of New York. On clear nights, the beams are visible from over 60 miles away. A World Trade Center site memorial competition was held to select an appropriate permanent memorial to the victims of 9-11. The winning design by Michael Arad, reflecting absence, now sits outside the museum in an eight-acre park. It consists of two reflecting pools with waterfalls rushing down where the Twin Towers once rose into the sky. The names of all 2,983 victims are engraved on the 152 bronze panels surrounding the pools, arranged by where the individuals were on the day of the attacks, so co-workers and people on the same flight are memorialized together. These site, the site was opened to the public on September 11, 2011 to commemorate the 10-year anniversary of 9-11. The National September 11 Memorial and Museum followed, opening on the original World Trade Center site in May 2014. The Freedom Tower, also on the original World Trade Center site, opened in November 2014. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back and talk about all the first responders, flight attendants, pilots, firefighters, and paramedics. American Airlines Flight 11 from Boston to Los Angeles crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center with 92 people on board. The Boeing 767-200 was piloted by John Ogonowski, an Air Force veteran and Air Force Reserve member who had flown C-141 transports at the close of the Vietnam War. American Airlines 12-year veteran first officer Thomas McGinnis had flown F-14 Tomcats for the Navy. The flight crew for the service that day were Barbara Aristegui, a 13-year veteran flight attendant, Jeffrey Coleman, Sarah Lowe, Karen Martin, Kathleen Nicosia, who had also flown for American for 32 years, Betty Ong, who placed the call to American Airlines reporting the hijacking, 24-year-old Jean Roger, who had volunteered to work the flight that day, 19-year American Airline veteran flight attendant Diane Snyder and Madeline Sweeney, who had worked for American for 12 years and picked up an extra shift on September 11. United Airlines Flight 175 from Boston to Los Angeles struck the South Tower at the World Trade Center with two pilots, seven flight attendants, and 56 passengers on board. The Boeing 767 was piloted by Navy veteran Victor Saracini, who had flown 767s for United for 16 years, co-pilot Michael Horrocks, who was a former Marine, 
The crew members were rookie flight attendant Robert Fangman, who had just joined the United Airlines earlier that year, Amy Jarrett, who was looking forward to marrying the man she loved, Catherine Labori, who worked on a political campaign before becoming a flight attendant, 21-year law enforcement veteran Alfred Marchand, engaged couple Amy King and Michael Tarou, and Alicia Titus, who had just told her boyfriend two days prior she loved him. American Airlines Flight 77 from Washington, Dulles to Los Angeles crashed into the Pentagon with 64 people aboard. The Boeing 57-200 was piloted by Naval Academy graduate Charles Burlingame, who piloted F-4s for the Navy before joining American Airlines. Co-pilot David Charlevoix held an aeronautical science degree from Embry-Riddle and piloted corporate jets before flying for U.S. Airways and later American Airlines. Flight attendant Michelle Hedinberger had flown for American Airlines for 25 years, most likely fought hard to to keep the hijackers from entering the plane cockpit. Husband and wife couple Kenneth and Jennifer Lewis, who had met at an American Airlines party in 1991, normally worked separate flights, but had chosen to work together in order to vacation in Los Angeles afterwards. Renee May, a 15-year veteran flight attendant, had just gotten engaged a month prior. United Airlines Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco crashed into a field in Somerset County, Pennsylvania after passengers and flight crews successfully diverted the plane from its likely intended target, either the White House or the Capitol. According to the 9-11 Commission report, the Boeing 757-200 was piloted by Civil Air Patrol veteran Jason M. Dahl with Air Force veteran co-pilot Major Leroy Homer. Dahl had rearranged his schedule to fly on September 11 in order to take his wife to London for the fifth wedding anniversary match. Homer had served in Operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm and later flew humanitarian missions to Somalia and remain in the U.S. Air Force Reserves while working for United Airlines. Purser Deborah Welch had over 25 years' experience in the industry. One of United Airlines' most senior flight attendants and the oldest to die in the 9-11 attacks, Lorraine Bay was was a 37-year veteran of the industry who preferred to work on the coach cabin and who frequently mentored a number of junior colleagues. Flight attendant Sandy Bradshaw, who was the one to call United Airlines to report the hijacked flight, later working with others on board to boil water to throw at the terrorists. Flight attendant Wanda Green was a 29-year industry veteran and had been one of the first African-American flight attendants in the United States. Former police officer and detective C.C. Lyles had just completed flight attendant training months prior in January 2001. In addition to the flight crews of the four hijacked planes, countless unnamed heroes rose to the challenge at airports across the nation in support of the passengers and crew on board the flights. Numerous air traffic controllers, airline employees, and other support staff came together to devise emergency plans under unthinkable conditions, diverting to airborne planes away from the hijacked aircraft's trajectories and offering real-time directives. Thousands of other pilots and flight attendants who worked to claim their passengers and take precautionary measures against potential attacks on board their own aircraft. One other set of aviation heroes stands out as well. On September 11, dozens of U.S.-bound commercial flights from Europe were forced to divert after the FAA shut down U.S. airspace. A total of 38 flights transporting around 6,600 passengers touched down at gender Gander International Airport in Newfoundland, Newfoundland, Canada. Thanks to the airport's long runways and on-site equipment, the sheer number of trans- transient travelers doubled the population of the airport in Tiny Town in hours testing the limits of the facilities and local resources. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back. I wish I could name all of the first responders, all of the firefighters, the 343 firefighters of the New York City Fire Department, the 37 police officers of the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department, the 23 officers of the New York City Police Department, 
the eight emergency medical technicians and paramedics from private emergency medical services, the three New York State Court officers, and the one patrolman from the New York Fire Patrol. There are so many that donated their time, their efforts, their lives. So many have perished. A total of 2,977 victims were killed on the September 11 attacks, and 412 of those were emergency workers in the New York City who responded to the World Trade Center. We will now talk about what happened with air traffic control that morning. In the windowsless Nashua, New Hampshire bunker that houses Boston Center, the FAA facility that guides aircraft crisscrossing the skies above New York, New England, and much of New York, Peter Solowski, a 20-year veteran, starts his shift at 7 a.m. Soon, he is trying to figure out what is happening with American's airline flight 11. The plane had taken off from Boston Logan's airport at 7.59 a.m. After guiding the flight's initial climb, Soleskis can't get a response from the pilots. At 8.13 a.m., Boston Center, Soleski, American 11, climb, maintain flight level 350. Boston Center, Soleski, American 11, Boston. Boston Center, Soleski, American 11, the American on this frequency, how do you read me? Quote, I'm like, my God, maybe they're drinking Dunkin' Donuts coffee up there, unquote. Zaletsky recalls thinking, controllers chalk the lack of response up to multitasking. No one is worried yet. 8.14, United Airlines Flight 175 takes off from Boston Logan's airport. 8.20 a.m., American Airlines Flight 77 leaves Dulles Airport heading for Los Angeles. 8.21 a.m., the hijackers turn off the responders for AA-11. Then controllers hear Mohammed Atta when the lead hijacker accidentally broadcasts the message meant for the passengers on the air traffic control channel. 8.24, Atta, we have some planes. Just stay, just stay quiet and we'll be okay. We are returning to the airport. Soleski, who often speaks to pilots from Saudi Arabia and Egypt, recognizes Atta accent as Middle Eastern. 833. Atta, don't worry to make any stupid moves. At this point, controllers reach out to their military contacts. 837 AM. Boston Center, Joseph Cooper. We need you guys to scramble some F16s or something out to help us. Northeast Air Defense Sector, Sergeant Jeremy Powell. Is this real or exercise? Boston Center, Cooper. This is not exercise, not a test. Controllers note that AA-11 has deviated from its flight path. Bruce Barnett, operations manager at New York Center in Ronkonkoma, warns McCormick that possibly hijacked flight is heading towards New York at full speed. 8.41 a.m. United Airlines 175 to New York Center. We, we heard a suspicion submission on our departure from from Boston, sounds like someone keyed the mic and said everyone stay in your seats. Controllers failed to pass any information along. They are soon too busy trying to keep track of multiple hijacked planes. 8.42 a.m. approximately, hijackers seized control of United Airlines Flight 175. 8.42 a.m., United Airlines Flight 93 takes off from Newark Airport bound for San Francisco. 8.44 a.m. Madeleine Sweeney, flight attendant on AA-11, icy water, icy building, were flying too low. 8.46 a.m. American Airline 11 crashes into the north tower of the World Trade Center in New York City. Controllers initially think it's a small Cessna flying under visual flight rules and not part of their responsibility. 8.46 a.m. Dave Botiglia in New York Center sees the radar blip for A-11 disappear. Well, we know that he's not at high altitude anymore, he comments, concerned he pings another plane. 8.51 a.m. New York Center, Botiglia, United, United, do you read me? 
8.51 a.m. New York Center, Bottiglia, United. Do you read New York? There is no reply. 8.51 a.m. Air traffic controllers in Indianapolis received the last routine communication from airline American Airlines 77. 8.52 a.m. Bottiglia notes that United Airlines 175 has changed its transporter and is climbing rapidly. We may have a hijack, he tells another controller. Mike McCormick realizes United Airlines 175 probably was going to be another weapon to be used on the World Trade Center. 8.54 a.m. AA-77 deviates from its course and pulls its transporter. transponder. Could it have crashed? Indianapolis. Controllers cons- Indianapolis controllers consider the possibility. About 9 a.m., Gerald Earwood, piloting Midwest Express flight from Milwaukee to New York's LaGuardia Airport, can't reach the controllers. There was no chatter, no talk, no anything. He later told Garnett Graff, who complied an oral history of the day's events in the book, the only plane in the sky. Suddenly, a controller shouts an order for him to make an immediate turn and avoid gliding with United Airlines 175. I have never heard a controller sleep, scream like that. 9 a.m. Controllers struggled to keep up with unfolding events. There was some slowness, slow, slowness in realizing that they were that they that we were dealing with an additional hijack because by gosh we already had to. Recalls Dan Creedon, departure controller at Oregon National Airport. At 9:01 a.m. New York Center, Peter Mulligan to FAA Command Center. We have several situations going on here. It is escalating big time. 9.02 a.m. New York Center controllers tried to get a visual fix on United Airlines Flight 175. The severe clear weather means staffers at the New York Terminal Radar Approach Center see it diving toward the the World Trade Center. 9.03 United Airlines 175 flies into the south tower of the World Trade Center. Track on to New York Center. Another one just hit hard. The whole building just came, uh, came apart. 904. Ben Sliney, in his first day on the job as a national operations manager for the FAA in Herndon, Virginia, orders a ground stop banning planes nationwide from taking off. 9.05 a.m., Mike McCormick orders ATZ-0 to complete shutdown of airspace of New York City. No planes can take off or land. It's the first time that ATZ-0 has ever been used for an event like this, he tells history. It was intended to be utilized when you can no longer provide air traffic control services, generally due to equipment malfunctions. 9.10 a.m., Terry Sliney tells his staff to collect any and all reports of suspicious activities, including involving planes in the air. They post details of about two dozen flights to a dry erase board in the middle of the room. 9.10 a.m. AA-77's radar blip reappears. It is now in airspace managed from Washington, D.C. 9.10 a.m. In Cleveland, air traffic manager Rick Kettle recognizes similarities between the hijacked planes. All were transcontinental transcontinental flights, obviously full of fuel. Kettle tells his team to look out for comparable flights. 9.19 a.m. Ed Ballinger, a United Airlines dispatcher, warns planes he is following, including United Airlines 93, about possible hijackers. 9.20 a.m. Indianapolis controllers, now aware of the World Trade Center events, began to suspect that American Airlines Flight 77 has been hijacked. 9.24 9.24 a.m. United Airlines 93 checks in with Cleveland Center. United Airlines 93, Jason Dahl. Good morning, Cleveland. United 93 with you at 350. Oh, that's 35,000 feet. 9.27 a.m. John Worth, the Cleveland controller in charge of UL, United Airlines 93, makes the last regular contact with the plane's crew. 9.28 a.m. Worth hears sounds coming from one of his aircrafts. He can't immediately tell which one. It sounded like a death, life or death struggle. It was some screaming and some gruntle sounds. 
9.30 a.m. Langley Air Force Base fighters are directed to the Baltimore area to intercept AA-11, which is believed to be heading towards Washington. 9.32 a.m. Controllers at both Dulles and International Airport spot an incoming jet, flying rapidly and far too low. Creedence boss calls the Secret Service to tell them to evacuate the White House ASAP. Creedence, quote, He's like, we've got an under-track target. We don't know who he is. And he said eight miles away from the White House, heading right toward it, unquote. 9.32 a.m. Cleveland controllers hear a transmission coming over the air, apparently intended for, pass for passengers. Sia Jara, keep remaining seating. We have a bomb on board. 9.36 a.m. United Airlines 93 starts to climb. Pilots don't respond to worth. The pattern is familiar. 9.37 a.m. American Airlines 77 crashes into the western side of the Pentagon. Credon. Quote, he hit the Pentagon at, you know, I think like 560 knots, about 640 miles per hour, which is an insane speed, unquote. 9.39 a.m. Cleveland controllers and nearby pilots overhear a transmission from United Airlines 93. Jara, uh, this is the captain. Would like you all to remain seated. There is a bomb on board and are going back to the airport. Please remain quiet. 9.41 a.m. Hijackers pull the transponder from United Airlines 93 and make a 120-degree turn. The plane is now heading for Washington, D.C. 9.42 a.m. For the first time in aviation history, the Federal Aviation Administration orders all planes within U.S. Air Force to land immediately and closest airspace. 9.45 a.m. Terry Vigil begins overseeing the landing process in the Northeast. We told them, you're not leaving our airspace. Pick an airport. Sliney says 700 of the 4,000 planes in the air landed within 10 minutes. 10 a.m. United Airlines 93 passengers vote to retake the aircraft. The cockpit voice recorded picks up details of the struggle that follows. 10.03 a.m. Cleveland Center tracks the plane all the way to Shanksville, Pennsylvania and monitors on radar its final crash into the ground. Stacy Taylor, Parnum, one of the controller, one of the controllers asks a nearby corporate jet to look for smoke. 10:07 a.m. The pilots report seeing a big black hole and it was smoking. 10:15 a.m. By this time, the worst of their day in the lives of these air traffic controllers was over, and the postmortem had begun. Our last conversation for today is going to be how 9-11 changed travel forever. When the century began, you could pull up to the airport 20 minutes before a domestic flight in the United States and stroll straight over to your gate. Perhaps your partner would come through security to wave you goodbye. You might not have a photo ID on, in your carry-on, but you could have blades and liquids. Back in 2001, Sean O'Keefe now professor at Syracuse University and former chair aerospace and defense company Airbus, was, de was deputy director of the office management and budget in George W. Bush administration. At the White House, I was a member of the National Council security team, he told CNN Travel. He and his colleagues had been briefed on the Al-Qaeda terrorist group and understood the threat it posed. But at the same time, our imagination simply did not give us the capacity to think that something like 9-11 could happen. It had been nearly 30 years since the Palestinian terrorist attacks at Rome Airport in 1973, which killed 34 people and demonstrated that air travel was vulnerable to international terrorism. That seemed to have changed the whole security structure in Europe and in the Middle East in a way that we didn't really penetrate the American psyche. It's this typical American mindset, we have to experience it to believe it, O'Keefe said. Then, on the morning of September 11, 2001, a team of 19 hijackers was able to board four different domestic flights in the northeastern U.S. in a series of coordinated terror attacks that would claim 3,000 lives. 
flying in America, the rest of the world would never be the same again. O'Keefe was in the White House West Wing with Vice President Dick Cheney when the news came through. They had the television on. Matter of fact, it was CNN, he recalled. The phone rang. His receptionist was on the hotline to tell him to turn the sound up. Something had just happened in New York City. Like millions of people around the world watching the same screens, live after the first plane hit the World Trade Center in North Tower, O'Keefe and his companion assumed that they were witnessing a terrible accident, a matter of Federal Aviation Administration and the Department of Transportation. But when the second plane hit the South Tower 17 minutes later, O'Keefe said that was the moment where it really was evident that this was something more than an accident. This was a premeditated effort. The security guards, the Secret Service, all mobilized. The events of that morning in the, in the U.S. changed the nation automatically, immediately, into one obsessed in big ways and small with protecting security. The way that 325 million Americans go through airports today started on September 12th, and it has never gone back to what it was on September 10th. This was written by historian James Mann in 2018. The U.S. government immediately began work on the security manifesto that by November 19, 2001, would be passed into law as the Aviation and Transportation Security Act. The fact that they had orchestrated that strike with three different flights in three different places made it clear how vulnerable the U.S. was, O'Keefe said. That was the real slap in the face. It reminded, us, it reminded us how naive we had been. Getting agreement from Congress on security changes was fast and unanimous, he recalled. We needed to make the resources available right away to reinforce all those doors and cockpits and actually establish security perimeters. In airports and on airlines, meanwhile, tougher security measures were introduced as soon as civilian air travel resumed on September 14th. The National Guard provided armed military personnel in airports and travelers faced long lines as the new systems got their start. Those early post 9-11 passengers, people who hadn't canceled or rescheduled their trips, were, O'Keefe said, largely accepting the new high security regime with its disruptions and delays. We all had an epiphany on the same day. Some of the 9-11 hijackers had been able to board flights with proper identification. After the attacks, all passengers 18 and over would need a valid government-issued identification in order to fly, even on domestic flights. Airports could check the ID of passengers or staff at any time to confirm that it matched the details on their boarding pass. Before the events, the U.S. federal government had a small list of people deemed a threat risk to air travel. However, what we know today as the no-flight list, a subset of the terrorist screening database noting people who are barred from boarding commercial aircraft for travel into and out of and inside of the U.S. was developed in response to 9-11. Around the world, countries became more stringent with identity checks, security screening, and their own versions of the no-flight list. In 2002, the European Union introduced the regulations demanding airlines to confirm passenger boarding the aircraft as the same person who checked in their luggage, which meant checking ID both at luggage check-in and when boarding. Later in the decade, fingerprints and retina irises and retina and iris scanning was introduced in some countries. Sorry guys, not really great with talking today. Airport screening in the U.S. used to be a piecemeal undertaken by private security companies appointed by airlines or airports. As a part of the new Security Act, the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, was introduced in November 2001. Now an agency of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which was formed later, a year later, the TSA took over all of the security functions of the FAA and U.S. Airlines airports. By the end of 2002, the agency had already recruited close to 60,000 employees, wrote TSA historian Michael P.C. Smith. 
Looking back 20 years later, O'Keefe reflected that it was an enormous challenge that it, in that immediate time afterwards to mobilize a whole new cadre of security forces, thousands of trained professionals to do this. It was not without its flaws. Recruiting issues and right training and all the things that were necessary, we went through plenty of fits of and starts to make that happen. The fact that America's allies and friends and partners around the world had already been through this was a huge benefit, he said. We were able to learn from them and how they did and what they did. Some of the 9-11 hijackers were reported to have been carrying box cutters and small knives, which, were able, which they were able to bring their security. Before long, with the new streamlined enforcement by TSA, potential weapons like blades, scissors, and knitting needles were no longer allowed on board, and airport workers were better trained to detect weapons or explosives. By the end of 2002, the TSA met a key mandate of the Aviation and Transportation Security Act by deploying explosive detection systems nationwide. In the following years, other terrorist attacks would further change what we could and could not bring on board on the planes. In August 2006, a foil plot to detonate liquid explosives on multiple transatlantic flights led to today's restrictions on liquids, gels, and aerosols and carry-on luggage. That same month, TSA began requiring passengers to remove their shoes to screen for explosives, five years after the shoe bomber incident of 2001. And the agency also deployed federal air marshals overseas. Metal detectors were standard at airports before 9-11, but by March 2010, a few months after the underwear bomber was apprehended on a Christmas Day flight after a botched mid-air attack using a device hidden, hidden beneath his clothing, full body scanners were, start, were starting to be installed at U.S. airports and about 500 were in action by the end of that year. By July 2017, in response to increased terrorist interest in hiding improvised explosive devices inside commercial electronics and other carrying items, the TSA began requiring travelers to place all personal electronics larger than a cell phone and bins for x-ray screening. By the following February, Facial recognition technology was also being piloted. It used to be that getting into a cockpit on an American aircraft that was flying in Americans in American airspace was as easy as the doors you used to get into the toilet, O'Keefe recalled. Bulletproof and locked cockpits became standard on commercial passenger aircraft within two years of 9-11. The Arming Pilots Against Terrorism Act was signed into law in November 2002 and by the following April, the first weapon-carrying pilots were on board U.S. commercial flights. The aviation fans and children could once hope to get a visit into the flight deck. That dream swiftly became, came to an end. Private jet pilot and social media star Raymond Cohen told CNN Travel in July that he believes the unprecedented inaccessibility added to, flying's, to flying mystique. People are not welcome in the cockpit anymore, so it's like a big secret, Cohen said. Now this is one of the only ways people can see what's happening, following the pilots on Instagram. The immediate impact of 9-11 included a big drop in travel demand. Not only had passenger confidence taken a hit, but the additional security meant the flying experience was no longer fast and hassle-free. In 2006, the International Air Transport Association estimated that the airline revenues for domestic U.S. flights fell by 10 billion U.S. dollars a year between 2001 and 2006. For comparison, the net losses globally due to COVID pandemic in 2020 were 126.4 billion in total, according to the International Air Transport Association. In a study from 2005, the impact of 9-11 on road fatalities, Cornell University's Garrick Blalock, Frieda K. 
Kadiali and Daniel H. Simon found an increase in travelers choosing to drive rather than fly. The unintended consequence of this was that driving fatalities increased significantly following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. They estimated that the total of 1,200 additional driving deaths in the past five years were attributed, attributed, attributable to the effect of 9-11. Speaking to CNN ahead of the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Kadiali said there have been the fall of Kabul and all these recent events in Afghanistan. It did cross my mind whether people would start getting nervous about flying again. Delays, long lines, and confusion over the restrictions are also back on the agenda in the pandemic era. As to whether something like 9-11 could happen again, O'Keefe reflected upon the fact that the greatest achievements of Homeland Security and of the security services around the world can never be shared with the general public. In the process of educating the public, what you also do is educate terrorists. So we will never know the all-near misses, he said, you almost get into a false sense of security. That September morning in 2001 flipped the switch right away from almost non-existent security to unbelievable in-your-face all the time. However, two decades later, there have been no aviation-based terrorist attacks anywhere near the scale of 9-11, said O'Keefe. These security measures have worked. And that is all I have for you all. I hope that this episode has taught you a little bit more about why we do what we do, how we're not there just to serve you your drinks or your snacks. We have been trained in how to save your life, not only from a medical emergency or when you pass out when you've drank too much in Vegas or because you forgot to eat something that morning or because you don't have enough to eat and so you need to take this trip for whatever reason, but you put all your money into your ticket we're there for more than that. We're there as the last line of defense should somebody try to gain access into the flight deck again. Your flight attendants are there to save you. Everyone, stay safe. Fly safe. Look at you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Flight Attendant Podcast, on Twitter at StaySafeFlySafe. Email us your experiences at theflightattendantpodcast at gmail.com and visit our website, theflightattendantpodcast.com. We'll see you guys next time.